A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Over the past six months, the inquests into the 1981 Stardust fire have been taking place at the pillar room of the Rotunda in Dublin. I've never known the reason why or what happened that night and hopefully now I'll find out the answers of what happened that night so I can finally get some sort of closure. The inquests have already heard from the families of victims and from staff who were working on the night. But now the most eagerly anticipated witness has finally taken the stand. Eamon Butterley. He was the manager of the Stardust on the night fire tore through the venue, killing 48 young people and injuring hundreds more. Eamon was the manager on the night. He was 36 years old. He was um, made manager by his father, Patrick Butterley, to run the nightclub. And he um, presents himself, as he called himself at one point, the manager of managers. He said he had no expertise in pulling pints, he had no expertise in running a kitchen, he had no expertise in security, he had no expertise in entertainment or anything. So he had people running all of this. He saw himself really as kind of making sure it all worked and kind of delegating, really. Now, in his late 70s, it's hoped his testimony, which resumes this morning, will lead to a better understanding of how the tragedy happened. Social affairs correspondent Kitty Holland has been present for his evidence each day. I mean, he was the most obviously anticipated witness. I mean, it was absolutely packed, absolutely full when Butterley started giving evidence. And also a lot of um, kind of journalists who would have covered the Stardust on and off. I saw Aoife Moore was there. Um, there was other journalists. Frank Connolly came down. Um, Charlie Bird was there. So a lot of public interest in this, I suppose, star witness in a way. This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today, will the testimony of Eamon Butterley get us any closer to the truth of what happened at the Stardust. Kitty, the Stardust inquest started in April and it's been hearing evidence for about eight weeks now. And since last week, the former manager of the Stardust, Eamon Butterley, has been giving evidence under cross-examination. Let's go through some of the main issues he was questioned about. So let's start with the locking of the emergency exits. Various witnesses over the course of the inquest have said that on the night of the fire, the exits were locked and shut with chains. And this meant that people could not escape the fire. And this was said at the time to have been done to stop people sneaking in, essentially. What did Butterley say about this in his evidence? Well, we haven't we haven't really 
absolutely pin down what was the state of the doors on the night. Now, we know that there was a policy which was common, apparently, um, even after the stardust in venues of draping chains over the push bars on exit doors to make them look locked because this was, you know, a poor country. People were always trying to get into places for free and let their friends in for free. Um, but what we've heard about the stardust is that that was definitely a policy that that, that happened and that was commonplace and there's seems to be no argument about that. Where there's um, contention now is that some of the doors, particularly three of the six exits, were they absolutely chained locked on the night um, and pa- kept padlocked. And what we've heard is that a new policy was introduced about between three and six weeks before the disaster, um, which Eamon Bushley agrees um, is the case of the doors being kept locked, fully chained and locked, three of them at least, on disco nights. So the disco nights were Friday and Sunday night in the Stardust. And this attracted a younger crowd, a crowd with less disposable income. Other nights had sort of cabaret and, you know, older crowds coming into them. But on the disco nights, they started to lock the doors. And Eamon Bushley has agreed that this was something that was introduced about three weeks before. He's not taking full responsibility for that. He's saying it was the head doorman's idea. And then he's saying that, yes, he made the final decision. And at one point he was saying it wasn't his policy, it was the doorman's policy and that he was trying to stop it. And then at another point he said that actually, yes, he did agree to this policy. Where we come down to then the real, we're not sure about, is whether those three exits that were definitely chained and locked until about half past 10 at night, um, whether they were unlocked at half past 10, 11 p.m. that night or not. And Eamon Bushley insists that they were unlocked and um, on the night and that the head doorman, who was his uncle, Tom Kennan, had told him that they were unlocked and that he had come to him on the night of the 13th of February 1981 and said everything's OK and that he understood that to mean the doors have been unlocked. This evidence that Butterley's giving about the doors contradicts, of course, evidence heard previously in the tribunal, which talked about the patrons struggling, the kids, teenagers, struggling to get out of the building. Can you remind us what was said about the evacuation on the night? Yeah, and we're yet to hear a lot more about the evacuation because in the next module we'll hear from patrons and they will be the ones who were there on the night at the heart of the evacuation. What we've heard from doormen um, and from barmen and we've heard conflicting kind of accounts from them, some saying that the doors were openable, but I'd say the majority of evidence we've heard, including from DJ on the night, um, is that the doors were obstructed. We know that there um, was a big bottle skip in front of one of the eggs Exits. We have heard that there were chairs stacked in front of another exit. And at the very least, there was this, this policy of the draping the chains around the bars, which would have jammed them to some extent. So we, we, we know that's the case. And what we've heard is real struggles to get out, people kicking and pushing and screaming and the panic and people uh, kicking at doors. And, you know, there was at one door we've heard that there was um, someone who was in the defence forces and he had kind of advised everyone to get back and then throw themselves at the door. So the doors did get open eventually, but we've heard yeah, huge struggles to get the doors open. While the building was on fire? While the building, a very combustible building, was, it was igniting within, from, it went, we've heard it went from a small fire on a seat to the whole building engulfed. And bear in mind, there were 900 people almost in the building within four minutes. 
Now, another contentious issue, and this is one that Butterley has been quizzed on, because we know that the Stardust wasn't a sort of a purpose-built nightclub. It was a factory that had been transformed into a nightclub. And a contentious issue was the use of carpet tiles to line the walls of the venue. And these are now believed to be the most substantial contributor to the spread of the fire. What can you tell us about that? What did he say about that? Okay, well, what he said, again, was that it really wasn't his fault that they were used. So we've heard that these uh, carpet tiles, they were, um, we've heard that they were decided they were very good for the acoustics and that was why they were used as a wall lining on the concrete. They had thought about drapes, but then they decided the drapes that people would sort of swing out of them and they'd also, so they'd be problematic. So they went for these carpet tiles and he got these carpet tiles from a a floor sales rep and the floor sales rep a man called Declan Conway has given evidence and he said that he had seen these carpet tiles on a wall on a display in the Bradford showrooms where he went to look and he brought these back to Eamon Bushley and said you you can put these on the wall Um, he showed them to his father he said Patrick Bushley and and Patrick Bushley liked them and so there was a decision we'd put them on the wall now what we've heard is that Dublin Corporation asked for a fire certificate for the carpet tiles and the chief fire officer from Dublin Fire Brigade said they had to have this classification which is a bit of a mouthful and it's um, a class one surface spread for flame and apparently that means that not very flammable. Mm. (laughs) So this class one, two, three, four and probably above um, getting less safe as you go up the numbers. So he says he got the fire certificate from Declan Conway. Declan Conway provided it as asked and he's passed it on to Dublin Corporation. Now the certificate was a class three or four. He says he didn't even look at it, passed on to Dublin Corporation and Dublin Corporation should have vetoed it. He blames Dublin Corporation. Dublin Corporation didn't come and say we couldn't use them. So, you know, Dublin Corporation needs to answer why they were on the walls, not me. And what we've heard is that Dublin Corporation did write to Patrick Bosley saying that the carpet tiles could be used as long as they complied with the certifications that have been put forward by the Chief Fire Officer. And they didn't. And they didn't. And Eamon Bosley's argument, and some may say it's a plausible argument, is that Dublin Corporation were down there several times and they could have vetoed the use of the tiles. Butterley was also questioned, and this to me is nearly the most horrifying part. He was also questioned about why the windows of the bathroom had metal bars along them and they were sealed up by metal sheets, which restricted anyone who fled to the bathroom from being able to escape. And you could see people thinking, well, we go to the bathroom, we'll get out the window there, but they couldn't. What was his response to that? Yeah, and the and we've already heard some accounts from people saying that from outside the stardust as the fire raged, you could hear the screaming in the toilets. Just horrific. His argument is that the people were passing alcohol and weapons, he says, in through the windows um, before in the weeks before the fire. So six weeks before the fire, a decision was made to weld, not just nail or pin metal sheets and bars to weld steel sheets inside the toilets. And we know that Dublin Fire Brigade used ropes attached to the fire engines to try and pull the and couldn't remove the steel shutters. So they, um, as one of the council put it, um, they were interred in the toilets. They were trapped. And Eamon Bushley says that those toilets were not a means of escape anyway. It wouldn't have made any difference. 
they weren't an official fire escape. So what are you asking me about this? Yeah. And he says that the frame that was on the toilets had that kind of lattice work, you mm-hmm. know, that so you would never have got a person out through the holes. Anyway, we haven't heard this, but I would imagine maybe the steel rope might have been able to pull those frames off. And it did say in the um, undisputed facts, as they were called, that were read out at the very beginning of the inquest, that they could have been used as a means of escape. And of course, when you hear figures like they'd been, the bars had been on the windows for the previous six weeks, you'd think there was a dance there every weekend. There could have been, there could have been a stardust tragedy every weekend before that. Yes, or every, any weekend after. If yeah. it hadn't been that weekend, yeah. you yeah. know. Yeah, that, yeah it was going to um, happen. In a lot of ways, you do look at the stardust and think it was such a combustible tinderbox that it was a disaster waiting to happen, really. I'll continue my conversation with Kitty Holland after this short break. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So can we talk about Eamon Butterley himself? It's, it's becoming clear from Butterley's evidence so far that, well, that he says he'd absolutely no concept of the fire regulations or fire safety for the venue um, or about training any of the staff and the safety. How did he end up being manager of the Stardust? Yeah, I mean, the Butterley family is quite interesting and some of this has come out. They were market gardeners. So their business was, um, and he went to agricultural college. Um, when he left school um, and they obviously had, were growing vegetables and fruit all over North County Dublin and they had this food processing factory to process the, f- the vegetables and fruit into jams and that kind of thing. So his expertise was in mar- market gardening um, and then Patrick Butterley bought a pub licence, a bar licence um, called the Silver Swan from a pub that was called Silver Swan on the Keys. And one of the bars in the Stardust was became known as the Silver Swan. He transferred the licence up there. Transferred the licence. And they decided to, tra- to convert a large portion of the factory into a nightclub. So, Because it's in a suburb, it's in a built up area, yeah. lots of young people, lots of people. A, a brand new community, lots of people had moved out there in the 60s, as we discussed before, from the tenements and from very poor kind of slum areas. So, yeah, it was a, a new area in need of a venue. And, you know, we've had these um, recreations of the venue, kind of like animations or computer graphic animations. And it looked like an amazing venue. I mean, they had 
Joe Dolan there, Sonny Knowles. It ha- it could hold um, 1,400 people. Um, tiered seating stage, five bars, a restaurant, function room, like a fantastic venue. So if it had been done right, it would have been like a great addition to the Dublin entertainment landscape. So Eamon then was put in charge of um, of running the place by his father and in particular to, to get it bringing in revenue because the manager before apparently had not been doing too well. So Eamon was brought in to get the revenue Save up. pair of hands. Save pair of hands, cut costs, um, well, keep costs under control and, and get more money in. And as I said, he had no expertise in running a, a, a running a nightclub. And he um, presents himself, he's, he called himself at one point the manager of managers. He said he had no expertise in pulling pints. He had no expertise in running a kitchen. He had no expertise in security. He had no expertise in entertainment or anything. So he had people running all of this. And he, he saw himself really as kind of making sure it all worked and kind of delegating really. So his, and I think, you know, you I feel he really believes this, that he didn't really have, he didn't have the expertise to run the place. So he delegated all that to other people and he reported back to his dad and he says his dad was the the main boss. His dad called the shots. I think, you know, he had a very, I get the impression Patrick Butterley was a tough dad and, you know, Eamon, he spoke about one of the main concerns the morning after the fire was how he was going to tell his dad. That was really on his mind. We've heard that in evidence recently that that was a huge issue for him, like in the car on the way from the fire back to tell his parents was like, how am I going to tell my dad, you know, that his nightclub burnt down. In 1981, he was asked, Eamon Butterley was asked, you know, what what did he do on the night of, of the fire? What did he say? I mean, he he heard he heard that there was a small fire on the seat in the West Alcove and saw that there was this fire was taking hold. He saw some of his staff trying to put it out with fire extinguishers, not successfully, and says that he then realised that he needed to clear the place, but with no no proper fire procedures in place and no training and I suppose no evacuation plan. It was all haphazard um, chaos. Everyone has said that, that, that there was no plan in place. It was that people were running on instinct and adrenaline and cortisol. And so he he ran out, he got out um, and tried to take get people out with him and then was directing firemen to where he thought there were hydrants and um, trying to help people get exits open. Although, I mean, he says the exits opened easily. It struck me there when you were saying at the, when Butterley arrived to, to give his evidence to the, the pillar room, there was a lot of sort of veteran journalists there. And it struck me that part of the reason for that, I think, is that Butterley has been silent publicly, at yeah. least. Yeah. For the last 42 years, Uh, he hasn't given interviews, he hasn't, you know, and I'm sure he's been asked and asked and asked and asked because there's been many books, there's been documentaries, nothing. Do we know what he's been doing for the past four decades? We actually don't. And that hasn't come out in evidence. And, you know, as soon as he takes the oath, you can't go up and talk to him. So, you know, you'd never approach a witness as a journalist and when they're under oath. So no one's had an opportunity to interview him and he hasn't been asked in the witness box. So we don't know. He's been, um, I think he still lives in the area, not in the same house, but he's, you know, he's seen in, he's seen in the area. He did mention actually he went back to work on the farm, was mentioned once, but I don't know what he's been doing since. In his uh, 1981 statement to the, the Keen Tribunal, he said that it was his belief that the fire was started deliberately. And the 1981 tribunal agreed that it was probably caused by arson. 
the Butterly family got more than three quarters of a million euro in compensation, essentially the building damage and essentially the, the business. So three quarters of a million. And the arson finding blocked families essentially from getting compensation from the Butterleys or the state. Has he been questioned on this yet? He has not. And that's um, that'll be Dublin City Council's legal team, I'm sure, will ask him. And they are due to start asking him questions on Wednesday. The inquests have heard eight weeks of evidence so far. So that's going to, you say, that's when Dublin City Council starts examining that. That's going to be a key moment. What do you think, because you've been sitting there all the time, have been the most significant moments, in your opinion? Perhaps the most moving has has definitely been the pen portraits at the very beginning. I don't think anything... I mean, we will hear from patrons who were there on the night and that's going to be, I think, really harrowing. Um, some of the things they endured and the trauma they're still experiencing. But the pen portraits were really powerful um, the, of the families remembering their loved ones. Um, and that was just such a privilege to be there, to share that space, as they say, um, with them. But there has been some evidence from Leo Doyle, who was the deputy head doorman, who was um, Tom Kennan's deputy. He gave evidence for a few days and and kept holding to his belief that the doors had been opened and the doors had been opened. And he took a break on his last day of evidence and he said, I need to take a break. And he came back and he said, I think the doors might have been locked. And that was really, wow, you know, and what wondering what had led him to that moment. And then there was Michael Kavner, who was a, a doorman on the night as well, and he had been talking, he had given a series of interviews straight after the, um, and he was a young doorman, he was 20, 21 at the time, and he had given a number of interviews to Today Tonight, which was the big flagship like primetime at the time, and to the Evening Herald saying that he had unlocked the doors at half past nine that night and in the witness box he's kind of recanted and said yeah I hadn't I hadn't unlocked the doors so there's been it's building towards I think a picture which will be closer to the truth than we've we've had and certainly and the arson the arson finding is gone you know that was removed from the record in 2009 so whether we'll find a more likely cause of the fire, I don't know. But the truth is, you know, as true a picture as we can get, I think is what we'll, we will get from these inquests. And gosh, it's long overdue. Finally, Kitty, Butterly was asked last week that if you arrived into the stardust around 10 o'clock on the night of the 13th of February 1981, not having any idea what's coming down the line, nobody did, but is there anything you do differently? What was his response to that? He didn't actually address it. He didn't address what would he have done on the night. He said, what I would have done differently is not turned that building into a nightclub, which is kind of dodging the question, you know, because you would have liked to have said, heard him say, well, I might have made sure the doors were open or because, you know, or I might have made sure there was an evacuation plan in place. But he said... I would have not turned a former factory into a nightclub. Um, I would have knocked it down and, and started from scratch. So maybe he's getting at the building wasn't fit for purpose, but he didn't address the question in the way I think the families would have liked. Because that is a that is a clincher of a question. What would you have done differently on the night? He might be asked again. He's up again. You know, he's going to be up for a few more days. Thanks very much, Kitty. Thank you. That's it for today. 
For more of Kitty Holland's reporting on the Stardust inquests, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan and John Casey. In the news, we'll be back on Friday.